1: And welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we will be talking about a new edited volume, World War I and the Jews, Conflict and Transformation in Europe, the Middle East, and America, a fantastic new collection of important essays from top scholars that cover an array of understudied topics related to the Jews and the First World War. Here with me today to talk about the book are its editors, Professor Marsha Rosenblatt, the Harvey M. Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History at the University of Maryland, and Professor Jonathan Karp, who is Associate Professor of Judaic Studies and History at Binghamton University at the State University of New York. Thank you both so much for being with us today.
2: You. It's nice to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. I know we've we've tried to do this a few times, and um, now we'll finally be able to have our interview. Very excited. Uh, before we discuss the book, I wonder if you could each tell the listeners a little bit about about yourselves. Well, um, I, I'll take the
2: prerogative of going first. Um, I teach, as you said, at the I teach Jewish history at the University of Maryland. I have been here for forty years, so. Uh, I feel like an old timer in many ways, but in any case, I'm a specialist on the Jews of uh, Central Europe, in particular the Habsburg monarchy, Austria-Hungary in the late 19th and early 20th century, as well as its successor states in the 1920s and 30s. So places like Austria and Czechoslovakia and so forth. I've written about the Jews of, of Vienna in the late 19th century. I've written about. I've written a book on the Jews of Habsburg Austria during World War One. Um, and, um, and I've written a lot of articles on various aspects of Jewish life, uh, including things like Jewish marriage and courtship patterns in 1920s Vienna or uh, Jewish schools in uh, Moravia and so forth. Uh, so I'm, I'm a specialist on the Jews of Central Europe and, and World War I is one of my special interests.
0: And I am a historian um, with a, a fairly wide range or eclectic range of interests. Um, probably the unifying feature is an interest in Jewish economic life in the early modern and modern periods uh, in Europe and uh, in 20th century U.S. Uh, I've uh, written a book about uh, perceptions and debates around Jews emancipation in Europe from 1648 to 1848 um, and how their economic roles uh, featured in those debates. Um, and I'm working on a study of Black Jewish economic and cultural relations in the modern U.S. I've edited a number of uh, volumes or co-edited volumes, uh, uh, not including um, World War One and the Jews, or in addition to World War One and the Jews, uh, a volume on uh, Philo-Semitism in history. Philo-Semitism being, if not the opposite, then a kind of... Uh, alternative or counterpart to anti-Semitism uh, and edited a volume on Jews in the arts in the modern period uh, and the Cambridge history of Judaism in the early modern period. I Also, in relevance to, I think, this uh, this project was for three years, from 2010 to 2013, the executive director of the American Jewish Historical Society, which is part of the Center for Jewish History in New York City. Um, and uh, that features uh, largely in our, or centrally, in this project.
1: And so considering these um you know, overlapping but divergent backgrounds. Uh, what brought you two to write about Jews in the First World War? What inspired this this project?
2: Jonathan, why don't you start, and I'll okay. jump in at some point.
0: I was going to say, uh, Marcia has long been writing about uh, Jews in World War One. Um, for me, it was uh, an interest. Um, that uh, was sparked by a colleague of mine at Binghamton, uh, Alan Arkish, uh, who is the co-editor of the Jewish Review of Books, uh, who uh, thought and expressed to me uh, the notion that a panoramic history of Jews uh, in World War I has never been done, and it would be a great project. And that stuck in my mind when I went to New York City and was at the center for jewish history one of my responsibilities was to supervise uh, some postdocs several postdocs uh, uh who were working on disparate subjects and to write a proposal for a conference uh featuring their research and yeah. i was searching for uh, a unifying uh theme to bring together uh, uh what they were working on and i realized that actually uh Without them uh, recognizing necessarily this themselves, uh, they all had in common that their work overlapped with or touched upon uh, the topic of World War I and the Jews. So I wrote the proposal. It was successful. We had a great panel at the Association of Jewish Studies conference. And uh, Judith Siegel, who was the director of uh, programming at the Center for Jewish History, a wonderful person uh, to whom we dedicate the volume, actually, uh, approached me and said, you know, that was uh, such a successful proposal and, and panel. It strikes me that maybe we could do a conference here on World War One and the Jews. Of course, it was the centennial of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, The beginning of the war. The beginning of the war. That's right. right. So we... Uh, we uh, gathered uh, a number of scholars, uh, including uh, David Engel and Hacia Diner, Rebecca Cobrin, uh, Gennady Estreich, and uh, and soon uh, brought in Marsha, who is one of the leading experts on the topic, and uh, and we started to plan the conference out of which uh, this book, uh, this volume, emerged.
2: I should I should say that it was a real pleasure to work with this organizing committee. I was brought in a little bit late to the pro- to the process um, because all of the original people were in New York, and I live near Washington. Um, but uh, David Engel of NYU um, had some really interesting ideas how to structure the conference, and the book is structured the same way. Our edited volume is structured the same way. Uh, it was his idea and we went with it to, um, uh, you know, have senior scholars give general talks about the impact of the war on Jewish life or on different aspects of Jewish life, you know, all, all all around the world, um, or at least in the areas of our specialization. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and, and then to have, um, more junior scholars who were in the archives doing nitty-gritty research on Jewish communities in various areas that were affected by the war, primarily Europe and the Middle East and the United States, um, or North America, but everyone in the North America part was the United States, um, to give more in-depth you know, um, papers on one or another aspect of the war. And that worked really well at the conference, and it really worked very well in our volume, we thought. Um and then, after the conference, which was a very well attended conference at the center, I would say there you know several hundred people attended um It, it was Judith's idea, Judith Siegel, the same person um, that uh, Jonathan just mentioned, who urged us to um to publish it because the papers were really good and really interesting and uh and Jonathan and I took on the task of editing it and it was really um I must say a pleasure both to work with Jonathan and all of the um, authors of these uh, of these essays in producing a volume that really addressed uh, a lot of very important issues in the war that had not really been addressed before.
0: And let me just pick up on that last point and thank you, Marcia. It was, of course, a, a, an enormous pre- pleasure and honest uh, honor to work with you. But the last point is really crucial, I think, for for your listeners, Robin, uh, and that is that um, despite. Uh, the assumption that World War I uh, is a major event in modern history as it is and and, uh, universally recognized as such, there really was relatively little uh scholarly literature on the topic of World War One and the Jews. And I'll just qualify that a little and maybe we'll talk about it more in, in greater depth if you'd like to. But um while there there have been any number of studies uh on the Jews of an individual country or nation or region and, and World War One, there really were few, if any, um studies that tried to take in the bigger picture. Uh, and um, we, you know, we wanted to address that huge gap, especially given the, uh, the timing. So uh, it, it, uh, it, it, I think, fulfills or begins to fill a great need and a great gap in the scholarship. And that reflects a kind of consciousness or lack of consciousness about the importance, the overall importance globally uh, of World War I and the Jews.
2: And and I'm going to just piggyback on that point to say that I, I think that one of the reasons that World War I as an event um, uh, has not attracted, before our volume, has not attracted the attention of scholars in a, in a global sort of way, uh, is because the the transformations that that the war engendered in Jewish life in Europe, in the Middle East, and so forth, um, were eclipsed by even greater transformations after World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and so the Holocaust loomed so large uh, that even scholars that were not scholars of the Holocaust itself kind of just ignored um, World War I. They dealt with the pre-war period and then they dealt with the interwar period without paying attention. Uh, and of course, the Holocaust without paying attention to the impact of World War I itself on the transformation of Jewish life. And so we hope that our volume, our conference first and then our volume. Really addresses that issue.
1: Yeah, and let's stick with this topic of historiography for a minute. Um, There is, of course, this enormous gap on in World War One literature on World War One and the Jews, but also in Jewish history on um, on the topic of World War One. But among the sort of limited studies that that do address it, how has the history of World War One and the Jews been commonly understood and presented? You know, up up until now, before your volume.
2: Well, I think that the most of the studies, as Jonathan said, they're mostly um, country-focused, right? The Jews in uh, Germany, say, or the Jews mm-hmm. in some other country. Um, or my book, which is about the Jews in Habsburg, Austria. Um, the focus was on the country. And so, therefore, the focus of the scholarship were excellent literature. I mean, the books that I've are written are, are very good. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm not singing my own praises. I mean, they're very good studies. <laughs> um, but... Um, they were focused on such issues um, as patriotism, um, you know, the extent to which Jews did their patriotic duty and what that meant. That was an, an important focus of the literature. And that's an important issue. And it's in our volume as well. I mean, that, that is important. How do the Jews um, feel about their service in the war? Um, And obviously some Jewish communities felt more positive about their service and their patriotism than others. Right. The Jews in Russia were a little less keen about fighting for the czar than the Jews, say, in Germany were about fighting for the Kaiser um, or the Jews in England for fighting for the king. Um, So so one focus has been patriotism. A second focus has been the rise, the virulent rise of anti-Semitism or the rise of virulent anti-Semitism in many European countries at the end of the war. Um, for example, in Germany or Austria-Hungary, um, there was, uh, as the as there were food shortages and as the war just dragged on and people were just dying for no apparent reason, um, a lot of people blamed the Jews, and there was a lot of very nasty anti-Semitism, which in some cases led to physical violence. Um, not so much not in Germany or Austria itself, but but certainly in Eastern Europe in. Russian Empire at the end of the war. But even in, um, in parts of Austria-Hungary that went into, into war Poland, there were pogroms against the Jews at the end of the war because the Jews were blamed for the food shortages, for the, the horrors of the war, and for the nationalist uh, squabbles of, of the Jews. So, so anti-Semitism was an important issue. And I guess the third issue was the place of the Jews in the nationalist um, debates. That is, their World War One, as you know, unleashed um, the desire of, of many peoples of uh, East Central Europe and Eastern Europe were their own countries. Right, mm-hmm. Pol- the Poles wanted an independent Poland. The Czechs wanted an independent, well, ultimately Czechoslovakia, but originally Czechia. You know, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and what was the place of the Jews in that? And um, and you know, were the Jews Poles? Were the Jews Czechs? You know, so that issue. Um, has been studied and especially its connection to anti-Semitism. But, um, but those were the only issues and not some of the larger issues that, that we hope to deal with in, in our book, although we do deal with those issues in our book for sure.
0: I'll just add that, um, uh, a point that's, that has already been made, um, just to elaborate a little bit. I think, um, uh, to the extent that World War One was was conceptualized more broadly than in regard to individual countries and locales, um, it tended to be seen as setting the stage uh, or helping to set the stage for World War II and mm-hmm. for the Holocaust. Um, and uh, I think it's a really interesting historiographical and philosophical issue. Because there's a lot of truth to that, as Marcia's remarks uh, just alluded to. Um, but on the other hand, it's very hard to look at an event purely from the vantage point of subsequent events, an even larger or more momentous event that follows, you know, some decades later. Um, and the challenge here, I think, in looking at World War I and the Jews is – in part, not entirely. That would be foolish. But in part, to try to um, not forget, but um, but uh, block out uh, awareness of what comes later. Uh, simply to be able to focus on the event itself and the range of contingencies and possibilities that existed that don't lead inevitably teleologically to the Holocaust. I think we succeeded to a large extent in doing that without distorting our discussion uh, so much that we... uh, that, that we pretend that we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, a couple of the articles are very overt uh, on, on the scene setting or stage setting motif. But uh, but I do think that that was a self conscious goal of ourselves in constructing the um, the conference and the volume that came after. Let's see if we can confine chronologically for the most part and thematically for the most part the focus to the war itself and its uh, the the years immediately preceding and following.
2: And let me add to that. That's a very good point. I, I'm glad you made it. That it's not just the Holocaust that could, um, you know, uh, obscure the events of World War One. It's also the establishment later of the state of Israel. Because, of course, one of the important events of World War One was the fact that a the British government issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, supporting, um, you know, promising British support for the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine and um and Zionism was energized by that and and it's very easy you know to read a straight line you know from that to the establishment of Israel when of course, there was no straight line from that event to the establishment of the state of Israel um but also a lot of people have have seen World War one as as I've already alluded to to uh, you know this uh cradle of national identity, so the Jews become Jewish nationalists as well right mm-hmm. they um they embrace Zionism, but they don't all embrace Zionism in the interwar period. Or the same type you can't of Zionism. History backwards. <laughs> uh, or a type of Zionism, right? Um, uh, Jewish nationalism, that is the notion that the Jews were a nation entitled to certain recognition um, as a national entity. It certainly did become more popular at the end of World War I and into the interwar period, but of course not all Jews uh, subscribe to it. And in fact, some of the articles in our volume, like the one on Salonika, shows intense clashes between um, Jews who uh, embraced a Zionist perspective and Jews who did not uh, embrace a Zionist perspective um, uh, during the war. Uh, and uh and what that meant for their other loyalties uh in at that- at that moment so we we try to be careful about not reading history backwards, not just about the Holocaust but also about mm-hmm. about the ultimate establishment of the state of israel
0: and, and and finally or perhaps not finally but i would I would add that um the themes that some of the themes that um marsha just enumerated um patriotism, uh, anti-Semitism, etc. They they, they take on a greater perspective. One gains a greater perspective when one views some of these themes transnationally or as it were globally. Um, So uh, while these themes are, are very much present and prominent in local or national histories of Jews in World War I, when we have a comparative uh, perspective we we can really we can really see them uh, in a very pronounced and nuanced way i think that's one of the great advantages that the volume affords
1: that's actually a nice segue into um i think discussing a couple of these motifs these themes that you i think very effectively organize the book um sort of loosely around one of them is Jewish inclusion versus exclusion, which we've touched on a bit, and I think we could maybe discuss a bit further. I wonder if you could explain to us perhaps with a few examples how that theme fits into the essays that are in this collection, um, and how it informs our understanding of the Jewish experience of the First World War.
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, (laughs) uh, But but it's a good one. It's a very important one. Um, Well, in many cases, in most cases, well, maybe "most" is too strong. Many, we'll say, with many. In many cases, Jews, um, at least at first, at the beginning of the war, um, felt included in the body politic, um, included in the nation at arms. Right? It was a patriotic war, and the Jews were going to do their share. You know, their share. They were going to fight shoulder, but uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. with their. Uh, comrades and, and anti Semitism would decline, they assumed, because obviously everyone would see how loyal and patriotic the Jews were and they were dying for their fatherland. They were giving their money to support the war effort and their sons to support the war effort. And that certainly, um, you know, was true in Western Europe, in England, in France, in, um, in, uh, in uh, Germany, uh, in, and even in Austria Hungary. Um, uh, and the United States as well, although the United States enters the war later and it's a complicated situation there. Um, but, of course, that begins to unravel, you know, as um, the war proceeds, um, especially in uh, the central powers, uh, in Germany and Austria-Hungary, but even uh, in um, France or England, um on the other hand, it's all very complicated. One of the nice things about this issue of inclusion, and the exclusion comes, you know, obviously with uh, the anti-Semitism, but, but with the, on the inclusion side of things, um, is how it's different in different places and in an interesting ways. For example, there's a wonderful article in our volume about France, um, and it, it relates to different episodes in France in which... Jewish um, behavior was used as an example of Republican virtue, right? That is, by the general propagandists for the war. And that's really interesting, right? um, uh, In one case, a rabbi who was a chaplain in the French army was killed at the beginning of the war while um, helping a Catholic soldier say his last rites. Mm. Wow, this was this fabulous example. And it wasn't just the Jews who used this rabbi to show how loyal they were. He was used by French um, uh, propaganda as well. And that's really interesting. And then there was the second example in her article is about a young boy from Alsace who was so loyal to France. Alsace was then part of Germany, but this young man was so loyal to France because Alsace had been part of France for several centuries before 1870. He was so loyal to France that he deserted the German army and went to fight for France, but he was found by the Germans and executed for desertion. Well, the French use this as a wonderful example of the loyalty of people to France. They, they didn't use it as a, an example of Jewish loyalty, but of loyalty of the Alsatians to France. Anyway, so that that's a wonderful set of examples of Jewish inclusion. Um, well, but it's more complicated. I'll let John talk about some know, I'll
0: just, I'll just uh, add that the uh, the cover of the volume uh has an extraordinary picture uh which is a a a, a postcard uh from uh nineteen fourteen um depicting this scene of the Jewish chaplain who is himself um about to, or on the verge of death but he is administering the last rites and holding a crucifix this is mm-hmm. a rabbi holding a crucifix before a dying catholic soldier and there's a, a a bright almost divine uh sunlight uh that is illuminating the scene and and it's it's very very dramatic uh, uh so i, I think yes. that uh Yes, go
2: ahead, Rob. Uh, I was going to say that's a wonderful example of of of, of the inclusion of the Jews, um, but it was always more complicated. There was always complications um, about Jewish inclusion, um, not just because of the rise of anti-Semitism, but um, you know, certainly in Russia, you know, the Jews were ambivalent about about their participation um, in the war effort and. In um, even in the United States before America entered the war, um, a lot of Jews were ambivalent because Russia was the great enemy, and why should they fight on the same? If America were to go to war with England and France, which is what most Americans supported, um, if they supported war at all, um, how could they fight with the allies of Russia when Russia was the great enemy? Right. On the other hand, the the Jews of Austria, Hungary, and Germany had a much easier time because the war was against Russia. And in Austria, Hungary in particular, the Jews, the main enemy in the first two years of the war was Russia. They didn't fight on the Western Front. They fought against Russia in the first two years of the war and then against Italy in the second two years of the war. And the, the Eastern Front, the Russian Front, was against Russia. Well, Russia was this great enemy of the Jews, the land of pogroms, the land of discrimination. So they were fighting. They could assert their Austrian patriotism at the same time as they were. Doing a Jewish cause and liberating the Jews, not just of Galicia, which uh, the Russian army had occupied at the beginning of the war, but of all of Russian Poland, and and bringing you know sweetness and light uh, to and and freedom and so forth to these Jews. But on the other hand, you've got the situation in the Ottoman Empire, which is much more complicated. Right, the Jews had been loyal Ottomanists, but then the Ottoman army. Discriminated against Jews by putting and also Christians by putting them in labor battalions instead of in combat units, and the Jews were really mortified and hurt by that. So how do they fight? In their you know, and how do they fight for this country? Um, so it was. It, I think one of the things that the volume does is it shows that it's always complicated. It wasn't just patriotism versus anti-Semitism. It was always complicated.
0: Mm-hmm. And one further example on the inclusion side that I think is worth mentioning there's a a terrific article by a young scholar named Jessica cooperman ah, uh, yes who looks at uh, the um efforts on the part of the uh department the war department the u s war department and uh, general pershing uh to create um uh a chaplaincy uh, that, and, and uh, social services for soldiers um, uh, and for their morale uh, fighting in the war uh, or preparing to fight in the war. And uh, they decide that in doing so, they're going to chiefly employ the YMCA, which, of course, was a missionizing Christian, Protestant Christian organization. And uh, both... Um, uh, Catholics who comprise about a third <clears throat> of the U.S. fighting force and Jews, who were a much smaller percentage, but still considerable, uh, and Jewish organizations and Catholic organizations protested and eventually succeeded uh, in having a, a Jewish and Catholic representation, a kind of a tri-faith uh, chaplaincy. Um Instituted in the uh, in the military beyond what had existed in the U.S. military ever before, uh, and in the aftermath of the war, part of these these efforts partly resulted in the creation of the U.S.O., uh, which was a non-denominational uh, or multi-denominational service um, directed at uh, helping and and uh, benefiting uh, soldiers. Uh, American soldiers so there's a an interesting example of a pluralism at work in the American context that was uh, catalyzed by uh, the uh, conscription effort um, and the mobilization effort of world war one
2: Right. That that Kuferman article, Jessica Cooperman article, is really wonderful for the, all the reasons Jonathan just said, but also because she points out that this notion of inclusion of the Jews in a tri-faith America, uh, which most scholars have assumed happened during World War II, mm-hmm. you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, we're all together, we're all Americans, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, um, that happened in World War II. But she shows how it was already beginning in World War One, and the Jews felt, really confident. The Jewish Welfare Board is the organization that the Jews themselves formed and to sort of cater to the needs of, of Jewish soldiers. Um, and um, uh, and the Catholics had a similar organization. Um, the Knights of Columbus organized it and so on. But, um, uh, you know, so the, the Jews were already in this period sort of asserting their right to be an equal religious group, even though they're a tiny religious group, right? I mean, what percentage of all Americans were Jewish in this period or in any period, right? Uh, maybe it was 2% or something like that. Um, but they, you know, if they're going to fight for America, they deserve the same religious services as others. And the American army ultimately recognized it. Initially, they were callous to the needs of Catholics, and, not callous, but indifferent to the needs of Catholics and Jews. But then they realized, no, they yeah, need to attend to this. Wonderful.
1: An and that connects um, to another major theme that I think is present throughout the volume, which is um, sort of Jewish institutional life and the ways in which um, the creation of a number of organizations, both American, but also sort of global and transnational, um, fought for different elements of, of Jewish rights. I wonder if you could expand on how, how these developments fit into the volume and also into the history of World War I and the Jews. Jonathan,
2: why don't you go first? <laughs> I mean I
0: can go first too, but on the spot. Well, uh, I'll just say briefly that the <clears throat> the war um called or mobilized Jews in different countries to respond institutionally and organizationally. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh organizations were established um, that were, in essence, patriotic organizations to uh, um, organize or facilitate or inspire uh, patriotism and participation uh, of, uh, of Jews in a given country. Uh, and uh, this fits in with what we were really just talking about. Uh, the war was an opportunity to demonstrate uh, that Jews were loyal and willing to fight. Um, I'm just going to spend a moment uh, talking about that in a broader context. Going back to the 18th century, th- that had always been a central question as to whether Jews could be citizens. Um, those who were hostile to Jewish integration into European societies, as the idea of citizenship was starting to emerge, uh, insisted that Jews were physically and morally and religiously uh, ill-equipped to uh, be soldiers and to make the kinds of sacrifices that were necessary uh, for uh, membership. And so while there had been certainly uh, any number of opportunities uh, in the 19th century to demonstrate otherwise. I think World War One really was the first sort of broad and, and universal, almost universal uh, expression of that opportunity. And a uh, Jews, uh, although there certainly were pacifists and opponents and, uh, and those who didn't want to fight, um, uh, among Jews, like uh, among every other group, um, institutionally and in terms of representation, it was important to show this uh, this devotion of loyalty. So there were Jewish organizations that uh, emerged um, for that purpose. And there were also Jewish organizations uh, that emerged for the purpose of um, uh, uh, asserting patriotism while also helping uh, Jews suffering from the conflict elsewhere in the world. Um, the principal uh, example of that, but it's not the only example, is the um uh, Jewish uh, Joint Distribution uh Committee that was established in uh in 1914 uh particularly initially uh by American Jews in order to aid uh jews suffering in palestine now palestine was a place where uh, the jewish community was extremely poor Mm. um and uh, also the war had isolated that community from traditional sources of of charity and assistance uh, that had existed for centuries Uh, and so the joint as it came to be known uh, sought to break through that isolation and uh although there were many frustrations involved uh it did succeed to a high degree in doing so um uh and and there are there are other examples of that type of course um in the american context um one might even say that world War one uh, afforded American jewry uh the opportunity to really assert itself globally that partly had to do with America's uh, neutrality until 1917 so that it had the opportunity to um, Jews and American Jews had the opportunity to insert themselves elsewhere without appearing as a combatant. Um, Uh, But uh, but it was also a a kind of assertion of the way that the American Jewish community had had matured uh, and was ready to assert a kind of uh, institutional and philanthropic leadership that uh, hadn't really uh, uh, done so before. So um, uh, I I guess that's that's a beginning to answer a complicated question.
2: Right, and let me add to that that um, the, the suffering of Jews was extreme. Uh, it was Palestine was an especially egregious case of it. Uh, there was starvation mm. because of a locust epidemic in 1915. One of the articles in our volume deals with the a plight of women in the Palestinian and in, in, in Palestine Jewish women, um, mostly Sephardi Jewish women in Palestine in uh, during World War One and. And and how they how they coped with their terrible situation. But it wasn't just Palestine; it was also Eastern Europe. A lot of Jews suffered horrifically during World War One. For example, the Russian um, army actually deported lots of Russian Jews uh, to the Russian East um, just because they were afraid they were spies for Germany and Austria, and they want because they spoke Yiddish and you know whatever I don't know, Um, and they. And, and so, there was a great need to help those suffering. I mean, we were talking about huge numbers, not all Jews, but huge numbers were deported east um also, there was the problem of refugee flight, that is people in Galicia, which was um well, it was traditionally part of Poland, but it was part of austria hung it was part of the Austrian Empire from the end of the eighteenth century and um But the Russian army occupied it in World War one. The Jews were panic stricken that the Russians would do terrible things to them. And so about 400,000 Jews from Galicia and there were about 900,000 Jews. So almost half of the Jews of Galicia fled and they went to Vienna, they went to Bohemian Moravia, they went to Hungary, they went all sorts of places. And Jews had to mobilize to help these people. Um, The state helped them. The Russian state did not help them. But Austria did. I mean it had uh, you know it gave money to its refugees and, and so forth. It gave refugee camps, it gave money, but it was fighting a war, it didn't have the resources to fully uh, help them, and it wasn't just Jewish refugees, there were also non-Jewish refugees, and, and they relied on Jewish communities um to step in and help. And um and sometimes that was done with great positive feeling and sometimes with less positive feeling. Uh, for example, one of the articles in the volume deals with Hungarian Jews, an article by Rebecca Klein-Kesheva, and, you know, they were eager to have the refugees, the Jewish refugees that came to Hungary go to Austria, because the Austrian government was paying for them, but the Hungarian government wasn't. Mm. So, you know, it was a little complicated. But, but the point is only that the Jews had to mobilize to help Jews in distress, whether it was in Palestine or in Eastern Europe or in Central Europe, and, um... I Even mean, Jews in Western Europe didn't really have to do that, but Jews in, in Central and Eastern Europe did, and that, you know, led to um, a greater institutional um, uh, Jewish presence. Like the Joint, you know, played an enormous role all over Eastern Europe and um, uh, and the Middle East uh, in helping Jewish communities, uh, not just during World War One, but ever since. Um, and Jews actually took it upon themselves to not only help Jews financially with charitable efforts, but also to lobby governments to do something on behalf of Jews. And so after World War I, at the Versailles Peace Conference, there were all sorts of Jewish organizations that tried to lobby with the um, powers, the, the you know, America and uh, England and France, to... Uh, to uh, work for Jewish rights in Poland and it, all over Eastern Europe, and in Palestine, right? So the, you know, they were and and they were not fully successful, but they were partially successful. Um, and American Jews played an important role, but not the only role in in that. But but Jews. My, my point, really, and the point in the book is that Jews begin to be players in this kind of international politics when it comes to Jewish rights, and not just the rights of Jews. As citizens, Jews had long lobbied for Jewish citizenship rights, mm. um, starting in the late 19th century, but but also for Jewish national rights. So, for example, Jews lobbied at Versailles to have uh, Jewish national rights for the Jews of Poland. They didn't succeed. They only succeeded in getting um, some special rights, like Poland pledged not to hold elections on a Saturday, yeah. which would have just dis- disenfranchised 10% of the Polish population if they right. Did um and uh, and so forth, but so Jews were kind of players on the international scene, not just in the charitable side but also on the on the political side.
0: I think it's so fascinating that um on the one hand uh Jews are asserting their patriotism and loyalty we're as German as any German, we're as as French as any Frenchman Uh, but on the other hand they're also uh, asserting their international and transnational role in solidarity with Jews around the world that had always been a fear that Jews would be accused of being a nation within a nation, that they would be accused of being more loyal to uh, co-religionists in other places than they were to their fellow citizens. Uh, And of course, those tensions uh, very much existed during World War I. But we also see uh, a willingness of uh, many Jews to uh, try to have both, (laughs) try to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, And uh, of course, it helped if they could assert an international role that was uh, consistent with national patriotism. Uh, But but uh, often it was more complicated than that. So, uh, so that's another irony that we see emerging, and uh, in, in very much highlighted by the conflict.
2: Right. Although they sometimes fight with each other, right? British. That's true. Jews, you know, there were different factions within British Jewry, and different factions factions within American Jewry. Right. That you know, supporting a more national approach, uh, you know, an international, um, you know, uh, uh, Jewish cause and and others that were more nervous about that. So a lot of things are put into sharp relief by the war and the need to do something um, for suffering Jews.
0: I I just add, there's a a, a really brilliant uh, chapter by uh, David Engel at NYU in the book. Um, And he argues somewhat uh, a little bit uh, discordant with what we've just been saying discordantly with what we've just been saying uh it's it's hard to summarize uh, his very nuanced argument briefly but essentially uh he wants to make the case that that world war 1 was a decisive turning point in in jewish history and and a major part of that is his argument that um, whereas individual wealthy Jews like Jacob Schiff or the Rothschilds uh, in uh, in in the era preceding the war could sometimes effectively intervene on behalf of uh, foreign Jewries to protect them, say in Russia mm. against the Czars or elsewhere, the sheer uh, expense and tra- an economic transformation that the war entailed essentially made it impossible for any individual jew or even small group of wealthy jews to have that kind of financial and even diplomatic power and so it 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 resulted in the need to create institutions and organizations and work hand in hand with the diplomatic corps and through institutional channels uh in the US government or in other governments to advance a Jewish agenda in terms of foreign policy and his point if i understand it correctly is really that in many ways this was a less efficacious or could be a less effective mechanism, uh, than, than what had existed before with the individual sort of, uh, powerful, uh, wealthy lobbyist, uh, acting on behalf of the Jew. So whereas, uh, the reputation of Jews, the sort of stereotype surrounding Jews, in many ways, in the aftermath of of World War One, following the Balfour Declaration and other seeming diplomatic achievements mm-hmm. by by Jews, was that 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 Jews were really powerful, uh, and that World War One proved their clout uh, on the international stage. What what Ankel is saying, I think, is that that was very deceptive. And uh, in in reality, uh, the new world was uh, uh, so large, in a sense, uh, in terms of uh, bureaucracy, states, uh, uh, budgets, uh, that uh, Jews were actually weakened uh, in the aftermath of the war. Does that sound about right,
2: Marsha? Yeah, that does. I mean, and he is slightly pessimistic. You're right. Yes. Yeah, more than slightly. He's very pessimistic. <laughs> but um, but he also points out that in the aftermath of the war, you no longer have these large empires. So that right. the addresses which Jews had to address, I mean, uh, there were many countries, right? There were all these new countries in Eastern Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, et cetera. Well, Romania had existed, but it was bigger. <laughs> They're all instead of just the Habsburg monarchy, the Russian Empire, you know, you have all these small states, um, and many of which are anti-Semitic, not all, but many of which are anti-Semitic, but you also have the new states of the Middle East. You no longer have the Ottoman Empire, you have Iraq and, and um Syria, Lebanon, uh the British Mandate for Palestine and uh and so on and so forth. And so that 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 individual Jews can no longer just meet with the head of the Rus- you know, of Russia or the head of Austria-Hungary, right? They they're, 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 everything becomes more diffuse and therefore harder, just on that simple um, level. Exactly, it so it's yeah, it's a it's a really you know everything is is a complicated situation and um, and uh, and becomes more difficult. On the one hand, you do have these new organizations that are able to make a difference, like the Joint, uh, at, which is helping all of the national organizations. So, for example, you know in Austria, the the um you know the, an Austrian organization helped refugees, but they got most of their money from the joint. So the Jewish world is really very interconnected and the joint is really funding a lot of effort and it continued to do so. It still does so, but it you know it continued to do so um uh, in the aftermath of the war and into World War Two.
1: Well and I think what the book does such an incredible um job demonstrating is the plurality of jewish experiences during and after the war but at the same time as you both have mentioned um the sort of new forms of interconnectedness that are emerging these new transnational ties um that really you know change or i guess are factors that shape the jewish experience throughout the 20th century to today
2: Right. And they're doing it more publicly, too. I mean, I'm just as you were saying that I was thinking, you know, at the the whatever Congress of whatever city that um, uh, uh, that worked on the uh, creation of Romania and Serbia and Bulgaria in 1878, um, German Jews and French Jews and British Jews lobbied for Jewish rights in those new countries. Uh, But they did so behind the scenes. Mm. Right. And they did so through these personal ties of wealthy Jews and so forth to heads of state. Um, so for example, the way oh, Germany too lobbied for um, you know, Bleischroder, who was a, a wealthy banker in in Germany, he lobbied Bismarck to fight for Jewish rights in the New Romania and so forth. But in the aftermath of World War One at Versailles, it's a much more public um and much more organizational thing. It's not rich Guys, lot doing the lobbying anymore. It's or- Jewish organizations, sometimes ad hoc, sometimes more permanent, uh, that are lobbying, and they're doing so in a public manner, um, and and so they're they're asserting Jewish international ties for all to see, which is very interesting.
1: I've I know I've already taken up a lot of your time, and this has been a fascinating discussion. But before I let you both go, I want to um, give you a chance to talk about the upcoming event that this book is affiliated with. Um, I know we have many listeners in and around New York City, and I wonder if maybe you want to plug it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, we're very excited. Um, We would thank you for for that opportunity. We appreciate it. Um we're having a an event at the Center for Jewish History, which I mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, which is a wonderful facility um, on 16th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in Manhattan. It's going to be on Sunday, November 11th at, I think, 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So,
2: So, so not at the 11th hour of the 11th. Right. Day of the eleventh right. month, um, <laughs> we, which is when World War I, the armistice was signed. But it is the centennial of the end of World
0: War One. On the yeah, World we do. we we were able to choose that date, uh, and it was uh, it it worked out beautifully that we could have that date for for this event. And uh, we'll be discussing the book. We'll have uh, a panel of uh, scholars uh, discussing the book and entertaining questions from the audience. Uh, we're going to have a, uh, a reception that will be sponsored by Bergan uh, Books, which uh, published the volume. And I'm also very pleased to announce uh, for the first time on uh, national radio or <laughs> podcast that uh, <laughs> that uh, Bergan, uh, I think, is so pleased with the volume, which has uh, been out for a year now, that they're uh, going to issue a paperback Wonderful. edition. And I think it might be available for... For for sale at that event, uh, I would I would expect so. So we invite everybody uh, who's in the vicinity to come, and we'd love to meet you and uh, and discuss uh, this volume with you and all of the issues that it raises as we've begun to do
1: today. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure not many that listeners that will that will be able to to come by. I think it sounds like a very exciting and thought provoking event. I wish I could come myself. <laughs>
2: we wish you could be there you ask good questions.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> you two are, are very easy guests. <laughs> um, so much to say. Well, uh, John and Marsha, this has been fantastic. I'm so glad that we were able to make this work and to have you come on the show. It was a, a really excellent discussion. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Thank you. It's been wonderful. Take care.